Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. When I launched my show in May of 2018, I intentionally wanted it to coincide with Mental Health Awareness Month as well as Mother's Day. And my goal at that time was to interview experts in the field of childhood trauma and parenting and psychology in order to collect anecdotes for a future book about the role of mothers in our society that I was wanting to write. However, as the show evolved over the course of the first season, the book content was an afterthought to building episode upon episode of candid, thoughtful conversations with experts as well as regular people about what growing up is like for many of us and the path forward to healing from those experiences. And as you could see from behind the scenes, you would have noted that the show was flowing as I was flowing over that year. The topics were reflections of issues and struggles I was having in my own life personally, as well as with my kids. I would find that during the first season, that while the show does touch on parenting, many listeners were attracted to it because no children are required in order to gain something from each of the episodes. And that's because what ultimately links us all together is not that we're parents, but that we had or have parents ourselves. And a year ago, when I started this personal journey, I had described myself as a woman that failed at motherhood. But then I realized it was the other way around, that in fact, this thing we call motherhood and parenting in our culture failed me because it was not like I was given all of the tools to be successful at mothering and I just didn't do it or I didn't apply myself. The truth was I was never given enough to begin with. I was handicapped from day one and simply did the best I could with what I had. And I'd always known that I wasn't alone, that in fact my story is not terribly tragic or remarkable and in some ways ordinary in our culture and society. And that's why it's actually so important. Like so many people, I became a parent with genuine intention and optimism to do my best. But I had little understanding of the unconscious forces at work below the surface that were toxic and unstable, and that actually doomed me to repeat the sins of my mother. I experienced firsthand what passing down trauma from generation to generation looked like. Over the year, I've had many people comment on the fact that I've been able to discuss openly my troubles and my deficiencies while tiptoeing gently around the specifics of my childhood and respectfully not throwing my own parents under the bus. And I did that for many reasons, the major one being that my parents didn't choose for themselves to have their lives shared in such a public way, and it wouldn't be fair to them. And since they were still here, and like all parents that I talk about, they were doing the best they could with what they were given. And the point was to never talk about the specific incidences of my life and childhood, but really about changing the impact those things have on me today as a woman and as a mother. 
And so, admittedly, I've waffled regularly between wanting to share more about what it was in particular that had a tremendous impact on my young life and keeping that private, again, because I didn't want disapproving shame directed at a young mother who simply does not exist anymore. A woman who has many times over the years freely admitted that she was not prepared to be a mother herself and knows that she struggled with it. And I know all too well that feeling. You see, our lives are basically broken into two phases, the period of time when choices are made for us, and then we get to make them all on our own. And what's really shitty about all of this is that how we make our own choices is based on the foundation of that period of time when all of our decisions are done for us by our parents. And so it's choices, good and bad, that punctuate our lives and the direction our paths will take. And how we arrive at those choices we make as adults can be spoiled by the results of the experiences we had when our choices were made for us. So, unlike myself, who chose to become a mom, mine became one unintentionally and routinely wondered what her life would have been like if she had not chosen to have me in 1972 and to get married in her parents' living room to her boyfriend at 19 years old and three months pregnant. My mother would also be faced with a choice many of us will never know or understand, a cancer diagnosis at 24 years old. And the decision to have one more child first or have a hysterectomy right away and never be able to have kids again. She chose the former, and it was another decision that she struggled with for years. She was a young woman, unprepared, and somewhat unwillingly led into motherhood. Now, we're going to zip ahead in the timeline of my own life to a little phase that I remember so much more richly than many other blocks of time in my life for some reason. In 1977, I was beginning kindergarten, and my brother was just a year old, and our family would move to Athens, Greece, where my birth father, an Air Force sergeant, would be transferred. Looking back, it is clear that this would be the beginning of the end for these reluctant young parents and their innocent children. My mother and father were both uninclined to give up on their youth just because they were known as mom and dad to someone. I would meet up with my mother after school at the base's RNG, also known as the Rod and Gun Club for you non-military people. And I'd hang out there after school while she played darts and pool and hung out with her friends. To keep me occupied, I'd be handed what seemed like an endless supply of change to feed into the jukebox, where I could play my favorite songs over and over and over again until the patrons in the bar would complain to my mom. Memories are strange, because I can still remember one song in particular, and it was Sleeping Single in a Double Bed by Barbara Mandrell. I also remember very vividly Yana, the Greek woman who ran the daycare of choice for the American military families. Now, Yana's daycare was not what you are accustomed to seeing today. All of us kids would be kept in a large room with a hard, bare floor, painted walls with cheerful images, and some scant toys and books scattered around. Yana, who spoke decent but broken English, would sit in a chair at the doorway with her feet up, blocking the exit to keep us from escaping like a gatekeeper, and watch TV all day. It looked more like an off-leash dog park than a place where young developing minds could be nurtured. Sometimes I was left there for just a few hours. And sometimes my parents didn't pick me up at all, and I'd be left to sleep overnight in a strange home, in a strange bed, in a strange country. And I remember sitting on the floor by the window crying many times while the other kids ran and played around me because I missed my mom so much, and I had no idea when she was coming to get me, and that place left me starved and feeling lonely. Yana's mother lived with her, and originally she terrified me. She was old and pale and always wore black, which is the custom for a widow whose husband has passed away. But, needless to say, she reminded me of the Grim Reaper. (laughs) However, 
I had become such a common figure there and sometimes the only child. I was allowed out of the bare room and this old woman warmed me up to her by beginning to teach me how to speak Greek. Jan and her mother also let me come into the kitchen and bake with them. And in one winter, I helped them prepare the Vasa Lopita, the traditional New Year's cake that has a coin placed in the dough. And whoever ends up with the slice with the coin is blessed with good luck for the year. And I found that incredibly fascinating. Greece was about so many colorful and amazing things for my little life that I could continue to go on and on about it all. In fact, my present love of architecture and history was certainly inspired by my brief time living there. But Greece is also the chapter that holds the story of the night that broke me. The night in 1979 that I would come to realize 40 years later was the place where unsteadiness and unhappiness began and the roots of the black, toxic pain to come. Now, when we start to hunt for the experiences in our lives that we have to change, how do we know which one are the memories that matter? And it's easy because they are the ones that still hurt and bring tears to our eyes when we recall them. And this one hurt every time I replayed it all the way up until that fateful morning of December 17th, 2017, 40 years later, when I was blinded by the words childlike and powerless while reading Wendy Bahari's book. That was the day my brain told me that in order to heal, I needed to start with this night. Before I begin, I have to say that my birth father's own childhood story is not without its chapters of tragedy written in it. And so I say this too with an understanding that this young man trapped by parenthood and marriage was acting exactly the way one would expect him to do. And what he would do many times while living in this foreign country was leave my mother to be with her children alone while he partied on the base. And a very good looking man in his day, stories of his infidelities made their way into the home and to my mother's ears. And his drinking was way too much for all of us to handle. So fighting in our home was not an uncommon occurrence. On this night, I was put to bed before my father had come home, and I was woke hours later by the yelling. My parents' room was just down the hall, and obviously my father had come home late again and woke her, and she had some feelings about this. Through the yelling at one another, I was able to piece together that my birth father had been drinking and driving and wrecked our only car, and was late because he had passed out in the front seat to sleep it all off. The head of my bed was next to the door to my room, which was cracked, open to let the light from the hall in at night because... I was a little girl who was afraid of the dark. And it was there where it gave me a chance to look down the hall in the direction of my parents' room. Lying there frozen in my bed and with my head turned towards their room, I listened on and followed the argument. And then I heard my mother say she was leaving. Not just him, but all of us. And what is important to know right now is that it doesn't matter what was going through my mother's mind. And at that moment, she requires no justification. Why she felt that way what she did and why she thought her only thought and choice was to leave us behind. That's not how trauma healing works. What is important here is that what was going through my mind and what my brain did with that experience. Because in an instant, I went from my normal range of fear from listening to my parents fight again, back to my small body being flooded with the toxicity of sheer terror. I knew the worst was about to come abandonment which small developing brains at the most primitive level equate with death, mine and hers. And my brain kicked into survival mode and engaged me to do whatever I needed to do to save my life. And that meant I had to unlock myself from the frozen terror and do something, anything. I couldn't get my body to move at all, so all I had the power to do was to speak up, to beg, to beg her to stay. And I laid where I was with my head turned towards the opening in the door, waiting for her to leave her room because I knew she'd have to pass by my door first before she could. 
And when I saw her, I was able to make eye contact and I sobbed. Mommy, please don't go. Please don't leave me. And I got her to stop and our gazes were locked while I kept repeating over and over again, please don't leave me. Please don't go. And for what seemed like an eternity, she just stood there and stared back at me with an angry and hurt expression on her face and didn't say a word. But I could see that she was thinking about what to do. And what would happen next would be critical, life-changing for sure. Because instead of coming into my room, sitting on my bed, holding me in her arms and telling me that she'd never leave and she'd never let me go, my broken mom walked away. And my birth father, well, to be honest, I never see him in my recollection of this memory. I only have his distant, angry voice in the other room because he, too, never bothered to check in on me. I was left alone in my dark bedroom, frozen in my bed, to swim in my fears and grief for hours and to cry at my loss. The next morning, I'd find that my mom didn't actually leave but went to sleep on the couch. And she would tell me that it was seeing my face and hearing me ask her to stay convinced her that she couldn't leave that night. But my six-year-old brain learned from that experience two important things that would shape me for 40 years. My mother's presence in my life was not a guarantee. It's shaky and unsteady, and I have to be vigilant of that. And number two, that even as a small child, I have the power to keep her around, as long as I don't make her angry or mad at me, and I do what she wants me to do. The timing of what happened next is a blur, but obviously we couldn't stay in Greece. So my mother, my brother, and I flew to the States in between my first and second grade years to the safety of my grandparents' home in Hayes, Kansas. But then after attending school for only the first few days of second grade, I was sent to live with my aunt, uncle, and cousins in Halstead. I was told so, it was, so that my mother could get settled into Salina, and then she'd come for me. It was supposed to be a good thing for me and to keep me away from the chaos my life had become. And after some amount of time of living with my cousins and my aunt and uncle, I was finally retrieved, and I had to start school again for the third time in just a few months. Now, I do know better than to reflect on life and cherry-pick out only the experiences I had at the hands of my mother and say that those were the ones that affected me most. It's simply not fair to her, and it's really not the reality of life for everyone. The truth is, is that my birth father's experience with me is also pretty important to my story. And the overriding theme with him is that he didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I know that's a harsh thing to say, and maybe if anyone asked him if this was true or not, he'd be defensive, but the facts are the facts. We may say things out loud and try to convince ourselves that our words are our truth, but the reality is that actions, what we do, is the only truth we have to be judged by. And the truth is, is he was avoidant. And his own mother, my grandmother, did her part to keep a gap in there too. My paternal grandfather would reach out years later and apologize for his son's treatment of me, but that didn't change the fact that I had to grow up as the girl whose dad didn't want her. At some point in the five years that followed our return to Kansas, my mother remarried, but it too would not, not last long either. It was sometime during December of my fifth or sixth grade year. My mother handed me a small candy cane to take with me to school as a treat in the morning after I'd had a nightmare and was reluctant about leaving. And as I was walking to school, I wasn't even a block away when the candy cane slipped from my hands to the sidewalk and broke. I picked it up and I began to cry. And then my body swelled with terror that this might be the last thing my mother would ever give me. And here I had carelessly broken it. So I ran home crying uncontrollably and begging my mom not to make me go to school so that I could be with her. I was afraid that something was going to happen to her. Clearly, my mother was completely confused by my behavior and could not figure out what was going on, so she called the school to tell them what was happening. We did end up going to school that day, only it was straight into a counselor's office. 
What nobody had ever known was that since that night in Greece, I was having nightmares of my mom being killed and dying over and over and over again. I had become haunted by death and never said anything. In Greece, after that terrifying night, I would have dreams about headless creatures dragging her out of our car in front of me and into the darkness. And here, five years later, I was dreaming of her fighting with my stepdad and falling down the stairs in our house and breaking her neck. But what I didn't know then, but clearly sensed, was that my mother's marriage to my stepdad was rocky and problematic. And clearly her shift in behavior and other dynamics in our house did not escape my brain from seeing it and processing it as a dangerous situation for me again. And so at 11 years old, I was experiencing a nervous breakdown and with no tools to deal with it. And that's when I started to journal. I wrote and I wrote like my life depended on it. And I processed in my own head, my world and what was happening around me. And through therapy four decades later, it would be obvious that I was suffering from PTSD and had never received any help for it. Within a couple of years, my mother would remarry again for the third time to the man I'd ultimately identify and accept as my father to this day. And with him brought two infant boys, making us a family of four children, me the oldest with three younger brothers, and more children for the woman who had her conflicted relationship with motherhood. As a child living under the constant fear of loss and abandonment, coupled with the idea that I had the power to keep her it all from happening, meant I had become compliant, dutiful. And when I became older, this compliance was taken advantage of. As a teenager, I would not be allowed to go out and hang out with friends on weekends very often. And since I was forbidden to leave home, I was enforced to watch my brothers while my parents went out instead. I was captive. And not being allowed to make my own choices for myself, which is normal and important to teenage years, I simply became angrier and angrier and just held it all inside. But growing up was also really accented by emotions and interactions always being mixed up and confusing, and they always seemed inappropriate for the situation. Several of my guests on the show have talked about how some people treat emotions like a bag of marbles, each one unconnected to the other, just jumbled together, banging around off one another. And this was a metaphor I could identify with in my house. When things were scary, they were treated as funny. When something wasn't that serious, they were met with defensive yelling and needless intensity. Opportunities to connect were cut short with conversation-ending statements like, you better be a goddamn virgin when you graduate from high school, because I was. And that was literally my sex talk at 14 years old as we pulled into the driveway one afternoon after my first gynecologist appointment. And if I made a normal mistake, I was teased for it. In fact, I was commonly the butt of jokes. And I was led to believe throughout high school by many people around me, not just my family, that while I was book smart, I had zero common sense. And these messages kept me trapped and under the control of others who could convince me I wasn't actually smart enough to navigate this world without them, priming me for years of narcissistic abuse at the hands of too many men. So being doubted and teased all the time made me mad, especially when I was told, you just need a sense of humor. In the almost 24 years since I moved away from Kansas to Seattle, the lack of contact with my mother has been as much as my fault as hers. The fantasies about what could be faded over time, and all I was left with was disappointment. Curious, I did the math recently and saw that during the last year, I crossed a milestone where I have lived half of my life without her now. And when looking at the numbers on a piece of paper, it finally struck me that our situation and our lack of connection between the two of us, a mother and daughter, was unusual. And it was the truth in front of me that something was very wrong with our relationship and that it's no wonder that my venture into motherhood had been such a problem and why my own relationship with my own daughter had been difficult. Since I started to clear out and unwind the tangled threads of my story this past 15 months, I stopped answering my phone when my mom would call 
Now, keep in mind, my phone only rang about four times a year from her regardless, holidays and birthdays. But when I saw mom pop up on the iPhone screen, I hit the button to ignore the call. I listened to her voicemail and I'd send back a text reply. I didn't know what to say to her. I didn't know how to talk to her. And I wasn't sure if she was calling to talk about my work because perhaps she'd seen something on social media or if something had, someone had said something to her. I only knew that my experience with her told me we'd never be able to have the in-depth discussion about emotions and failures without her feeling attacked, perhaps defensive, and me again trying to navigate her feelings for her and becoming frustrated at it all, which I was simply too exhausted from doing. And ultimately, I didn't want to be distracted from the work I knew I needed to do in this last year because trauma healing doesn't just happen from only apologies and forgiveness. But coming into 2019, having eased the fears of the tiny little girl that was afraid of losing her mother over and over again, I was finally left only with the anger, this teenage version of a me still holding on to her resentment. Because I went through some tough shit in the last one to two years, and it sucked to not have a mom to lean on like other people have. I had to learn how to be my own mother, And at times I struggled with the feelings that it didn't seem fair that I had to do that. And so this was something I vowed to focus on. This anger held inside my body had been poisoning me for decades. This inability to stick up for myself when confronted by people who wanted to use and manipulate me over and over again has had the most profound effect on my life. This feeling that people are taken advantage of and sometimes can't stop it, no matter how badly you want to, makes my chest tighten and my fist clench still. And it's all from being caught in this frozen trap my brain set for me between my strong nature to fight for myself and to work to be seen and truly understood for the human individual that I am and the fear that doing so would make everyone I cared about leave me. Because even knowing everything that I know, in fact, it's probably from learning so much about how traumas affect us, I couldn't stop the anger you get when you think your future was robbed from you. And it finally bubbled to the surface. This journey, I would say, freed those feelings trapped at the bottom of an ocean, anchored down, and allowed them to rise to the top once and for all, which really is a good thing. I also knew that what I'm doing is different. I'm not doing my healing in private like so many people do. I'm doing it right out in front of everyone. Because trauma is a thief. It's an injustice. And if I can do something about ending it for other people as well as for myself and my family, I want to. And that meant I needed to bring my parents into my world in some way so that I could feel like I could continue on with this. That meant, after a year of avoiding her calls, I would finally have to talk to my broken mom. So, with the planned time off I gave myself between my seasons, I had intended to sit down and finally speak with her. I wanted to be able to provide assurances that as momentum grew, that I'd be mindful of protecting her from the harsh reality of simple-minded people who thrive on hate and casting blame. Because I'd known I'd already ran into several of them myself. Because if there's any arrows to be shot at anyone, they should be at me. I'm the one opening the Pandora's box of trauma, the one that so many families are afraid to do. And if people can't see what I see, that my mom really was doing her best with what she had, I wanted her to know that I'd be there to defend her. And I thought maybe if I could ask some questions, I could understand her life even more than I already did. And it would give me some greater empathy for her that would help neutralize that simmering rage I still had in me. So I was actually looking forward to this talk with my mom between seasons. But I never got the chance. As season one was drawing to its conclusion in March, 
I began getting what started out as confusing and admittedly annoying texts from her messing up my birthday and how old I was to asking what our address was again for what felt like the third time and talking about my daughter's birthday, which had already passed weeks earlier. I regarded it all as typical of my mother's aloof nature and apparent disinterest in the details of her own daughter's life, which was par for the course this whole time. And then I got a text from my dad saying he wanted to talk to me. And later that morning, my mom called and I answered. She wanted to ask me for my address again, and I gave it to her. And then she abruptly ended the call, and it was odd, but I thought that was why my dad wanted to talk. But the text didn't stop, and I was getting more frustrated, but also my worry was starting to grow, that something wasn't right. One, it was the frequency. She rarely reaches out to me, and now it was several times a day, talking about the same damn thing, this birthday card that was already two weeks late, and she couldn't seem to figure that out. And then three days later, I got a message from my ex-sister-in-law saying she was concerned about my mom because she'd reached out to her a couple of weeks ago about my daughter's birthday card, and then that day, it arrived in the mail at her house on the East Coast instead of mine. And that's when I knew my fears were valid, and I knew why my dad actually texted me. I called him, and he told me the news. In what seemed like something that happened overnight, my mother developed dementia, and it was pretty advanced. My first reaction to the news was heart-stopping fear. Fear that what was happening to her was a sign of my own future. And I was sickened by the thought of my own children having to experience this with me. And I was now wondering, did I only have 20 years left of being able to enjoy this beautiful new world I had just discovered? I called my best friend and she basically talked me off a cliff. She assured me that my mother and I were not the same, which I already knew, but reminded me that I have exercised my brain and my body in ways that she had never done and to not worry. And it made me feel better, but it also sparked a sense of urgency in me that, yes, our futures are never guaranteed. And if I have even less time than I think, I'd better be working at my dream of sharing everything that this amazing blue planet has with my kids and to not let anything stop me. And that keeping my health up matters even more now than it did before. But I also had to process the news that I had just received, which was essentially that the mother I had always known my whole life was gone. There was no bedside goodbyes, and there was no send-offs, and no chances to have the talk like I had imagined. In a way, I had learned that day that my mother died. There was now this new woman I'd have to figure out and decide what my relationship would be with her moving forward. I left work early that day, and I came home and I told the kids the news. My son took it harder than he and I had both expected, especially given the fact that it had been years since we had seen my mother. My daughter was sad, but she didn't miss a beat. I sat in my bedroom in my papa's on, a worn-out chair that an old roommate of mine nicknamed The Hug because it kind of just wrapped itself around you when you sat in it, and I let that chair hold me while I searched for what I was feeling for hours. The afternoon dissolved into night, and then, like so many times as I moved down this pathway of healing, an unexpected gift from the universe came when everything changed in an instant. It was about 9 p.m. that night, and I was in bed when my phone rang, and the screen said, Mom. And as it happened 15 months earlier, the words childlike and powerless came to me again in the same stunning bright flash in my head. Only this time the words weren't about me. They were describing her. And just like that, I let out a deep breath and my rage left me all at once. I saw my mom differently than I had before. I mean, I'd always understood why she behaved the way she did. I could see our collective history and experiences and put the pieces together that provided the reasonable, dispassionate explanations for everything. 
But it was actually when my ex-sister-in-law had said to me earlier that day that she always felt it was strange that my mother preferred to be with her brothers and her parents instead of her own children and grandchildren, that my perspective shifted even more so to seeing my mom truly from the outside through the eyes of someone else and not as her angry captive that I had grown up to become. She was and is always going to be the little sister, the doting daughter, the playful spirit. In some ways, my mother was the embodiment of Peter Pan. She feels safest in that place and in that role. And there are reasons for that. Reasons I'll never fully learn because I don't have the privilege of time travel to go witness her childhood for myself. But it doesn't really matter anymore. To finally look back through my history with her and really see that my mother today calling me at this moment and the mother she once was are not that different really. She is and always has been compelled and trapped by forces beyond her control and understanding like so many of us are until we are made aware of them. And now as this phone rang, what did this woman who clearly is stuck in a moment that she can't navigate out of regarding this damn birthday card really need from me? And the answer required no thought because I instantly felt compassion. Seeing her too once and for all as childlike and powerless, I knew immediately that what she needs is the loving tenderness we are supposed to give all of our children. She needs me. A healed mom. Be understanding and patient and kind with her and to gently hold her emotions and keep her safe. I answered the phone and I said, hello. And I heard her cheerful voice on the other end say, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I sent Reese's birthday card to the wrong address, but it's now it's coming to you. And I smiled and I replied, thank you, mom. That is very nice of you to be thinking of her. I will be looking forward to getting it. And she said back, okay, well, that's all I wanted to tell you. Goodbye. And then just hung up. My best friend checked in with me the next day to see how I was doing with the news. And after my shower, I had migrated back to my papa's on and I decided I couldn't possibly explain what had happened in a text. So I called her and I told her that in all honesty, how I was doing was that I had been set free. And that's not what she was expecting to hear. So I went on to explain to her about the call and the transformative experience where my resentment and anger left me, and how I now see my mother in a different, even more empathetic way, and that I could finally relate to her in the way she needs it from me now, in the way a mother loves her children. And that my heart is ready for that, because that's what my therapeutic healing and journey has been, was to become the mother I always needed for myself and for my children, and to be able to see my own mother, who is now but a child herself, and with this perspective. I told her too about how that morning I had tried to resurrect the anger that I'd had, and I couldn't. Another dip switch in my brain had been flipped, and a new pathway was now forming. And what will all this mean for my health, my disease that I had developed that was connected to and fed off of this locked-in anger? How will that change my life? Jesus, it's amazing to think of the possibilities for that alone too. But I also told my friend about the conversation I would never have. And it was regrettable, but it was also so weird to me, the timing of everything. I was feeling in some strange way. My mother is now in a protective bubble that has disconnected her from the world around her. And yes, I understand it is not without pain and challenges ahead for her as well as for my dad. But maybe it can in some way protect her from any more guilt and remorse that may, she may feel towards herself and for her mothering. 
And maybe this bubble will also protect her from the judgment others may want to cast towards her for the choices that she made as a mother. I told my friend that I feel like now she actually has some immunity. And if I'm being honest, that idea brings me tremendous relief for her. My friend and I cried together on the phone. And then she said to me, Ami, this is a game changer for you. And indeed it is. So happy Mother's Day. And welcome to season two. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiracone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.